Welcome to the Sheila Prama Extracted Podcast and join me as I welcome Ross Harvey. Ross is a Director of Research at Good Governance Africa in Johannesburg. He formerly worked at the University of Cape Town as a lecturer in political science. Ross, it's nice to speak with you today. That's great, Sheila. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Lovely. So, I mean, let's just start with the basic. How does governance in the public institutional space differ from governance, for instance, in the corporate space? Yeah, great question, Sheila. So largely the way that I see this uh, is a difference in incentive structures. Uh, We talk of institutions as the social systems, uh, beliefs, norms, values that motivate regular human behavior. Uh, And the way I see it, uh, those things, incentives that motivate uh, human behavior are often very different in the private and public sectors. In the private sector, uh, not to draw too sharp a dichotomy, but uh, the private sector is generally driven by a profit motive. uh, And that profit motive uh, to ensure that uh, revenue outweighs costs introduces a certain discipline uh, into the the private sector, into the corporate sector. Uh, And the accounting systems that we have also incentivized discipline uh, there's there's little room for wasteful expenditure precisely because of that profit motive. Now, on the other hand, uh, and again, many will disagree with me, but public institutions, uh, the government sector, if you like, the public sector, tends to be driven by uh, budget-maximizing bureaucrats rather than by profit-driven uh, productive sector employees. And now that's uh, not to say that there's something inherently wrong with the public sector. The, the public and private sector have different roles. But the public sector uh, is there to ensure justice, uh, to provide uh, an enabling environment for businesses to flourish because they are meant to enable the productive sector um, and they're meant to provide uh, peace and security and infrastructure. Uh, and so in that process, they utilize taxpayers' money uh, to to try and create an enabling environment for the private sector. But uh, unfortunately, uh, because the accountability mechanisms, the incentives differ, uh, there can be a lot more waste in the public sector uh, because that disciplining device is often absent. And it's not to say that it can't be there, um, and and at, at Good Governance Africa, we are certainly uh, moving to try and uh, persuade the public sector that uh, putting mechanisms in place to ensure uh, accountability, to incentivize uh, better governance uh, will actually pay off in the long run and create a mutually beneficial relationship between the private and public sectors uh, from which citizens all benefit. Hmm. So... You've said a mouthful. I'm going to follow up on a couple of things. Uh, But first, just to be clear, what you're saying is it's not a question of one being better, right or wrong. It's it's that these institutions by nature uh, have different goals and different motivations. And therefore, their sense of priority, their sense of what's important, their sense of what is valuable differs and we see in how they are then governed. Now, uh, 
the the is the profit motive in the private sector is tangible and you can quantify it because of the systems of accounting that it uses to your point i guess the question that arises then becomes in the absence of say for instance a profit and some kind of monetary value in the public sector how do we what kind of value then do we attach to public institutions in terms of their mandate? Yeah, terrific question, Chile. And I think it's probably best to maybe try and provide an example. So if, for instance, you have a state-owned enterprise, um, of course, ESCOM is the one that comes to mind in the South African context, the state-owned public uh, electricity utility. Uh, the, the provision of electricity is seen as a public good uh, by those who, who bear public office uh, and govern that institution. Um, and, and so it's very clear uh, to understand why that argument is made. Uh, electricity is an enabler uh, for productive activity. Uh, however, uh, if an entity like ESCOM uh, develops the view, uh, as, as many of its uh, employees uh, and um, and government shareholders have in the past a view that uh, bailouts will always be forthcoming from the taxpayer, uh, then the incentive to be disciplined and provide that public good in a non-wasteful way starts to dissipate. Um, and unfortunately, we have seen that. Um, but what it suggests to us then is that there have to be different kind of disciplining devices because as you rightly said, pro the profit motive largely uh, disciplines uh, companies in the right direction. It's not to say that there's no wasteful expenditure, but typically speaking, uh, there'll be a comeuppance uh, or an answerability uh, for that wasteful expenditure. Whereas in the public sector, we often see that going awry. Uh, and so there have to be credible mechanisms. Uh, in game theory, we call this deterrence. Uh, there have to be uh, credible uh, deterrences for defection or for for not being disciplined um, and so if there is wasteful expenditure uh, then those uh, incurring that waste or, or those um, wasting the money need to know that uh, they will be held to account um, either through losing their jobs um, or through uh, or through uh, being prosecuted um, so it's very important that that does take place. It's it's especially important in in our South African context, but also more broadly across the continent, where the public sector wage bill is often uh, multiple times higher than the total personal income tax revenue coming into the fiscus, and that puts a, a, a huge weight on on a very narrow tax base. Uh, it's therefore more critical than ever that public institutions. Uh, actually become better governed and that uh, mechanisms are put in place to ensure that uh, those tasked with creating an enabling environment uh, for the productive sector actually uh, do take uh, the way they spend money seriously uh, and, and do put uh, the public benefit uh, at the front and center of what they do. Uh, in many respects, this is also an appeal to, uh, to, to some kind of altruism um, in the absence of, of profit motive. You know, you're here to serve the public. Um, and if you don't serve the public, there should be accountability um, 
given that that's what you voluntarily take on when you take a job in the public sector? Hmm. So, I mean, put another way, if we want to improve governance uh, through public institutions, you know, how should we frame the whole establishment? What should be our starting point to be able to embed that spirit of altruism, which translates into robust governance, both through value systems and processes? Great, Sheila. So you'll have to forgive me. You know, being an economist, um, I, I probably have a tendency to boil things down uh, over much to, to incentives. But I, I really do think that it's critical to create uh, incentives for public service uh, in the best sense of that word. You know, that public servants are literally there to serve the public. Uh, and so we need to start actually with uh, transforming the culture. You know, it, earlier I said that institutions are the social systems that motivate regular human behavior. So we have uh, norms and beliefs and values uh, that, that motivate. Um, and so we need to embed in the public sector, this is universal, uh, a, a sense, a culture, if you like, norms and values uh, that are inculcated into the public servant, uh, that they are there to serve the public. There's some degree of dignity uh, and reward associated with genuinely serving the public interest. Um, and at the same time, the negative is also necessary. There has to be a strong disincentive um, to abusing taxpayers' money uh, and, and getting involved in things like state capture, which we unfortunately saw in South Africa for, for so many years. And of course, it, it continues in various guises. So there has to be that uh, inculcation of and the creation of, of appropriate incentives for, uh, for genuinely service-orientated behavior. We need we then need follow-up mechanisms like proper accounting systems and so on. And if you don't, as a local municipality, for instance, attain a clean audit, there has to be some comeuppance for that. I think what starts to happen is that a norm of non-accountability, uh, a norm of poor governance can start to settle in when there are no uh, comeuppances for not attaining a clean audit. Uh, that suggests impunity. Uh, that when that becomes normalized, we're in a very dangerous situation. You, you never want impunity uh, or a lack of accountability to become entrenched uh, because then that the, the power of that norm to motivate good behavior actually uh, gets eradicated. So we've got to work quite hard. I think it's a delicate balance. It's not simply a matter of putting rules in place. Um, if if the implementation and enforcement mechanisms and the appropriate incentives are not there uh, to bolster that, uh, then rules are just things that are written on paper, uh, easily abused, uh, especially if there's uh, if there's no sanction. Hmm. So uh, yeah, you speak about incentives, but but uh, as you explain yourself, I also hear. Uh, another, uh, if you wish, concept, which is uh, discipline uh, and, yes. and accountability. And I'm reminded that governance itself has, of course, three pillars, uh, which is uh, accountability, public participation, and transparency. And I wonder, in your view, given the pillars, in the public institutional space, 
should they be given the same uh, level of importance or given exactly the way you describe the role and the responsibility of public servants? Does any one of those pillars to you uh, rank superior? Uh, Sheila, no. And in fact, it's such a great question. I think that these pillars are all uh, essentially uh, integrated. That So what we would say, I mean, certainly my, my view is that transparency is a necessary but uh, perhaps insufficient condition to attain accountability. Uh, you can't have accountability without transparency, but just having transparency alone doesn't necessarily produce accountability. Um, and public participation is, is, a, is a kind of cornerstone pillar for this, you know, participative governance. Uh, and it, it closes the loop, if you like, because if there's transparency, but no genuine inclusive governance um, and participative governance, uh, then, then you lack a fundamental part of what you need to close that loop from transparency to accountability. Um, and so, for instance, uh, just to take an example from, from our sector, Sheila, you know, if we look at the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, for instance, uh, it's great to emphasize transparency, but unless there are participative mechanisms that utilize the information that comes out from those transparency uh, imperatives, uh, then you don't necessarily achieve accountability. So I see these three things as critically integrated uh, and, and you can't really have one uh, without the other. And I, I, again, I would, I would say that participation, uh, genuine citizen empowering to know how to hold uh, both corporates and uh, the public sector to account uh, is critical to, to ensuring that we have accountability. I think in the end, what we really want are uh, both accountable and responsible private sector and public sector players. Uh, but these three pillars are, are absolutely critical. We should never see them in isolation. And so to, a short answer to your question, I think we should give them equal prominence, but understand how they uh, relate to one another. Right. So, so in other words, when, when governance fails, it is either because the, the three elements have not been, uh, if you wish, applied and used to instruct how institutions function, or that one of them hasn't, and therefore, to your point, you, you, it becomes de facto a missing link. Or, or, or the absence of closing that loop, and, and that you know it, it doesn't have to be all uh, of them to be weak for governance to fail. One of them is sufficient to bring failure, but all of them are necessary to bring success. Would that be correct? Yeah, absolutely, Sheila. And it might be useful just to give a very brief example here. You know, if you think about uh, the Department of Mineral Resources, I'd say in South Africa. Um, there, there isn't as yet the kind of degree of transparency that we require. Uh, the the uh, online application cadaster, for instance, isn't uh, functional and in place as it should be yet. Um, but that would be a mechanism of transparency where everybody could see which license of which licenses have been applied for and where they exist and on what date they were applied for and so on. That transparency is brilliant, but if you don't have uh, public view of that, uh, 
um, and the public, in other words, community members that are affected by those applications actually also participating, uh, then you have transparency, but to what end? Um, and so again, to, to your point, you summarized it beautifully. Um, it's, it, 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 that example helps us to see that hey, having transparency is fine, but, and we should absolutely emphasize it, but it has to work together with with uh, participative governance that produces the accountability. It means that officials who don't govern properly can be held to account precisely because there was transparency and participative governance involved in the whole process from the minute somebody applied for a mining license right through to, to when it's actually provided and production starts. Uh, that whole loop has to be closed in order for us to see uh, a, a genuinely productive sector that doesn't destroy communities or the environment. Hmm. So, uh, you know, of course, that uh, ESG today is all the rage, though, of course, the component parts of it have always been together, but we've never seen uh, the environment, the social and governance put together and deemed to be if you wish, best practice. In the private sector, there's been a lot of uptake, in part because institutional investors have, uh, you know, put their, uh, thrown their hat in the ring and investors uh, and, and mining companies naturally have to respond. I wonder what your observation is in terms of the enthusiasm or lack thereof uh, of public institutions with respect to the implications of ESG on themselves and their ability to govern consistent with modern day uh, requirements. Yeah, oh, Sheila, excellent point. You know, and I think uh, that you know ESG has been given a, a bit of a bad rap, but as you rightly say, I mean these are are, are just uh, a set of component parts that in a nutshell mean that what we want is for the private and public sector to take their environmental and social responsibilities seriously and to account for the money uh, in a way that uh, is transparent and produces accountability. Uh, that's what we want to see. I think you rightly point out that in the private sector, uh, there's a disciplining mechanism in play already. Uh, companies who operate at a global scale I really do understand that increasingly their access to capital from institutional investors, et cetera, will be dependent on their ESG performance, on their ESG credentials. Um, I think what we've seen as well is that corporates who try to engage in greenwashing, uh, in other words, try to uh, elevate uh, and suggest they have ESG credentials that they don't actually have, will be found out. But now you rightly point to this uh, apparent disjunct between uh, ESG uptake in the private and public sectors. Uh, I do think that uh, in many respects, ESG uh, it can be more applicable to a private sector context. However, uh, what governments and public institutions really need to understand and, and learn is that they are there both to practice ESG as well and to create an enabling environment for ESG to actually produce the kind of 
outcomes that we expect. Um, you know, ESG in itself, fine, but it's actually there as a as a means to an end um, to to responsible corporate behavior. Um, and governments themselves, I believe, really do need to take this concept on board. Uh, and, and as our uh, mutual colleague, Deji Hastrup, often says, uh, that both the private and public sector need to mainstream social performance uh, and take environmental responsibility seriously. This has to be something that becomes part of the DNA of how both the private and public sectors operate. Again, if you take an entity like ESCOM, uh, it's not okay uh, for us to say, well, it's a, it's a public entity there for the public good. Uh, and, you know, because it keeps getting taxpayer bailouts, uh, it doesn't really have to take ESG seriously. No, in order to attain uh, any kind of uh, taxpayer input, um, especially in a bailout situation, it should have to demonstrate its ESG credentials. So that's one element, Sheila. The other element is that governments, I think, need to take their role in ESG regulation a lot more seriously. Uh, private sector players, rightly, I think, are, um, are often uh, at, a, at a loose end uh, to know exactly how to weight the various elements of ESG in their uh, accounting and reporting standards. Uh, there's a, an academic paper released late last year, for instance, that shows that among the six global key uh, ESG rating agencies, we see huge disparities, both in what's expected in terms of uh, reporting the underlying data, but also in terms of the weighting given uh, to various elements of the E and the S and the G. Um, and that is confusing for, for the private sector. So where government, where public institutions can play a role uh, is to uh, engineer more harmony uh, more coherence across these currently disparate uh, ways of rating and uh, and measuring uh, ESG performance. So that's where I think government needs to take its role seriously. However, it can't do that unless it itself in the entities uh, which form part of the public sphere are actually also practicing ESG. Local municipalities need to practice ESG. Um, and you see, for instance, in Cape Town, uh, the, the city... Uh, is is starting to procure power from independent producers. Now, in the process, it has to make sure that it exercises uh, environmental responsibility. People providing power can't be polluting the environment just because we have an energy crisis. They can't be exploiting their laborers just because we have an energy crisis. And they have to show their governance credentials that they're not wasting money or um or exploiting uh, the city in its uh, procurement uh, initiatives. Um, but of course, the, the city is in a sense uh, exercising ESG by taking its role seriously uh, to procure power and, and to provide feed-in tariffs uh, in the coming year to businesses and residents um, so that everyone can participate uh, in, in resolving the crisis that we have. That's something that we hope to see replicated and I would say, you know, it may strike one as unusual, but I think this is a good example of a local government actually exercising ESG, emphasizing renewables, uh, ensuring that socially 
clean energy projects treat labor properly, treat their workers well, um, and then uh, govern their contracts properly so that uh, we can address this crisis and so attract more business. Um, and that's got to be a, a kind of model for, for how we go forward, you know, especially in, in the, the collapse of institutions like ESCOM. Um, local governments, I think, increasingly are going to have to take this concept of ESG more seriously and use it as a, a framework for, for how it makes uh, governing decisions and then how it exercises governance over the projects that result uh, from those uh, initiatives. Hmm. So you 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 said a lot, which has got me thinking. Uh, one of the things is is this, your notion of ESG credentials, because I, I I think we are on a journey here, especially public institutions. I think there's a need for public institutions to step back and say, what do our ESG credentials as uh, you know public institutions? regulating or providing a, a service to the public look like. When we have achieved our ESG credentials, what will we look like? My sense is that this question is not asked enough. And so it remains kind of vague. We just know that they are responsible, but quite you know, at what point do we draw the, the line in the sand? Doesn't seem clear. And therefore we just keep going on, as you said, funding them and funding them and funding them, but nothing changes. I think the other thing that I find uh, interesting is, you know, in the extractives, uh, quite apart from profit, we also have this notion of the license, the social license to operate. It doesn't seem to me public institutions have the equivalent. Perhaps we, if we had something like that, it would very quickly uh, be evident when a public institution doesn't have the wherewithal to govern and therefore, to your point, we might shift that responsibility. But, but I think, listening to you, we at the moment, with respect to public institutions, we, we have more questions than answers, which, which then begs this question. If, in effect, in that maturity curve institutionally, the private sector are way ahead of the public sector who are not only the custodians of the natural resources, but they regulate and they are, have a duty of care to protect the public. How, if the public sector is ahead of public, or rather the private sector is ahead of the public institutions, how do we reconcile this custodial and oversight responsibility? Yeah, that is an excellent question, Sheila. I I'd have to, you know, being an, an academic, just uh, resort to uh, to an academic proposition for a minute uh, in, in order to try and answer this question. So in Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson's latest book, The Narrow Corridor, they talk about how important it is for countries to exercise simultaneously both government effectiveness and uh, citizens' ability to hold their governments to account. And these two things working simultaneously uh, produce what they call this narrow corridor in which economic dynamism can flourish. Now, what I see in answer to your question is that too often, as you rightly say, in the public sector, uh, this duty of care, this social license to operate just doesn't exist. And I think that exists partly because 
uh, there's often a lack of, of competence. That, that really has to change. We need a, a professionalized public service that is extremely competent at providing the three things that the public sector should be providing, security, infrastructure, justice. Um, and I mean, at minimum. Uh, and then we need uh, to equip our citizens to really hold government to account when they don't achieve effective service delivery, when they don't create an enabling environment for businesses to flourish. But how exactly we we get this incorporation of of really taking something like ESG seriously or, or really developing um, a social license to operate uh, is is a difficult and I, I think uh, as yet unanswered question. But one of the things that we advocate for at, at Good Governance Africa is for the private sector to become uh, development partners. But because as you rightly say, with the private sector being relatively far ahead in the sense of uh, really uh, taking ESG performance seriously, developing the, the ESG credentials, they can actually play a role in building the institutional capacity in the areas in which they operate. Now, that doesn't mean that they should take over the role of the state, uh, but they can because they have resources, um, because they're often um, well capitalized. They can actually invest uh, as a kind of broadening of their social license to operate. They can actually uh, help to build institutional capacity to help governments to to really deliver services effectively. Um, and I think that's going to have to be a part of the play. Exactly how it works, Sheila, you know, in terms of, of how we structure uh, the, the potential of the private sector to help the, the public sector, uh, especially at the local level in the areas, the host communities in which, say, mines operate, now, how we do that, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure yet, um, but we're trying to move the, the, the private sector to not simply, for instance, build schools or hospitals, um, which are good things in themselves, but rather to think about how they can uh, become partners in uh, integrated development planning, uh, building uh, the capacity at local level to, for, for governments to provide services that will help businesses to flourish long beyond the life of mine. You know, we often talk about this thing of, you know, the, the life's going to be, the, the mind's going to be there for its life, which is maybe 20 years, maybe more, depends how you plan. Um, but but we really need uh, for, for the private sector to, because it's so far ahead, to think, all right, what kind of legacy do I want to leave here? Do I just want to leave a hospital or a school or do I want to leave an entire system and a whole ecology better equipped to deal with um with life uh, beyond the life of mine um, and I, I think that's where we we, we need to move um, but again it comes down to to incentives the the public sector has to be uh, better incentivized held to account more strongly by citizens to ensure that they actually really do take this on and like you say you know if ESCOM keeps wasting money um, there, there has to be a, a mechanism for uh, for sanctioning that 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 def that defection you know that um, has to be a good deterrence mechanism we can't keep uh, bailing out simply because it's a public utility uh, and and that goes across the board actually uh, whether it's transnet or or escom um, we we as citizens need to become more active in calling for uh, for real accountability 
here's my last uh, uh, brief question to you. I mean, we've already spoken about uh, levels of competency, uh, which speaks also to capacity, but then also financial resourcefulness in the uh, public sector. I mean, when we add ESG and all its complexities and uncertainties executionally, aren't we just incapacitating bureaucrats by adding another layer of, of uh, processes that they have to work through? <laughs> yeah, Sheila, it's, uh, it is often a point that is that is raised, um, and and I have sympathy for the view. Uh, what I what I think we need uh, that will serve both the public sector and the private sector is more harmonisation, uh, and and we really have to avoid. You know, Sheila, I've heard you often use this phrase. You really don't want ESG to merely become a tick box exercise. You know, one more layer of bureaucracy equipping people who like designing forms that take others you know, months to fill out. Uh, we don't want that. We we want ESG as a principle uh, to to become. Uh, it, a, a, an integral part of how we develop reporting frameworks. So it's, it's not that we need more reporting frameworks, it's that we need the principle of ESG to define how we set those reporting systems up. Then to complement that, we, we, need, uh, we need laws uh, to be developed that, that also require uh, strong ESG performance from our, our private sector players and then in addition you need rating agencies to be on the same page so how we rank how we um how we rate players uh, both public and private sector players in terms of of esg needs to be a lot better coordinated otherwise we are going to have a proliferation of extremely confusing rules um and there there is this uh of global issue in in play as well now you know where for instance european companies are already heavily constrained that they need to behave responsibly in order to maintain their uh, security exchange listing uh, on a on a security exchange um and there are other players uh, chinese and russian players for instance who are not constrained by the same kind of of rules uh, that creates all kinds of of difficulties but um we we need more global harmonization uh, on this because ultimately stability serves everyone, um, well, certainly in the long run. Uh, but that's uh, probably a subject for another time, uh, given that uh, you know short run interests often unfortunately trump this uh, this long term uh, truth that uh, stability pays everyone. That's fantastic. Well. Uh... Ross, it was wonderful speaking with you. Uh, I have to kind of be disciplined and keep the interviews to 30 minutes, but sometimes I wonder about the wisdom of that, and today was a case in point. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kham Extracted Podcast. It's a pleasure, Sheila. Thank you for having me on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, great pleasure.